You are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, strong, feisty women. So this week, I have a show that is definitely brought to you by popular demand. This week, we are talking early and surgical menopause. We have many women in the community who have gone through menopause early, sometimes very abruptly through surgery or cancer treatment, as well as women who have gone through menopause around the average age, but also through surgery, which is completely different from going through it more gradually the way menopause happens naturally. Also, about 5% of women will go through early menopause, which is between the ages of 40 and 45, and about 1% will go through menopause prematurely, which is menopause before the age of 40. That's a lot of women. And I've heard from many of you that you don't feel you're getting the care or even attention that you deserve from your doctors. And after talking to this week's guest, menopause management specialist, Dr. Corinne Men, you can rest assured it's not your imagination. Dr. Men believes that a large percentage of women who experience early and or surgical menopause are not getting the counseling they need to optimize their well-being and long-term health. And she should know because she's been there herself. If her name sounds familiar, it's because she's been on the show before talking about cancer and menopause because cancer surgery and cancer care can send a woman like Dr. Men herself into early menopause. Corinne is a board-certified OBGYN with expertise and special interest in menopause management and female cancer survivorship health. She herself is a 20-year survivor of breast cancer and has a passion for using her medical expertise and personal experience to help women navigate these complex health issues. She is an active contributor and volunteer with the Young Survival Coalition, and she serves on their Council of Advisors. She is also an active member of the North American Menopause Society and is a certified menopause practitioner. She devotes her personal time and her professional time to female-focused telehealth practice, and we talk about all of her work and what you need to know during surgical and early menopause during this one. She also shared a bunch of links on help for medically induced menopause, premature ovarian insufficiency, and much more. I will put all of those with clickable links in the show notes so you can just go in and dive into this information further yourself. She was a wealth of information. She's very generous with her time. And if you reach out to her, I am sure she will respond herself. She is a gem. Okay, before we get into it, a quick reminder to head on over to feistymenopause.com and subscribe to my weekly newsletter and blog if you haven't already. Each Thursday, we bring you the latest on health and fitness and hormones, so please go check that out. As always, you can find us at Feisty Menopause on Instagram and Facebook. Please check us out there, and you can join our private, ever-growing Hit Play Not Pause Facebook group and be part of our conversations. I have an email if you'd like to reach me. I'm at hitplaynotpause at livefeisty.com. We have a Hit Replay Podcast Guide subscription service where you get a write-up on each week's show dot directly into your inbox every Wednesday afternoon after the show comes out. You can check that out at feistymenopause.com as well. 
as always, if you like the show, please share it with your friends and on your socials. The show continues to grow and it is because of people like you. I love you all. So thank you. All right. Before we get into it, a super quick thanks to Prevenex for their continued support. I just got this review from a listener and I wanted to share it with you. It's five stars for Prevenex Joint Health. Great stuff. So effective. Midway through the first bottle, I had noticed improvement in flexibility in my feet and a lot less pain. The joints in my feet were sore to touch previously, and now I'm back to walking multiple miles every morning, doing planks, and riding my bike in comfort. I hear you, Diana. Me too. And thanks, Prevenex, for your continued support of our show. Okay, enough of me. Let's have a few words about our awesome sponsors and get on with the show. Musculoskeletal health is everything during menopause. Everyone knows how much I love Joint Health Plus from Prevenex, which has helped me get back to distance running after arthritic toes stopped me in my tracks. Now they have a product that has become my go-to for muscle strength and recovery, Muscle Health Plus. Muscle Health Plus contains all the key ingredients we talk about on this show, like creatine monohydrate, essential amino acids, and branched-chain amino acids, Plus, even more cutting-edge ingredients like HMB and estrogen that are scientifically shown to increase muscle growth, recovery, and strength. I use it every day during my early morning lifting sessions, and there's no question that it helps my power during those workouts and my recovery after. Plus, I love having everything I need from the best high-quality ingredients in one reasonably priced shake. I've also heard from fellow users who have had bloating or GI upset in the past from creatine that haven't had any of that with Muscle Health Plus. I make my shake with almond milk and espresso, but it's also good with ice cold water, which makes the flavor really pop. As always, you can get 15% off your first order with the code HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Previnex.com. That's HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Previnex.com. Do your muscles a favor and head on over and get some today. For decades, running shoes have been researched, tested, and designed for men. Brands have relied on the shrink it and pink it approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are stoked to be working with Hedda's. Hedda's designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. Hedda's has unlocked the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research and creates better shoes for women's performance. Some of Hedda's special features include a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing on women's ankle bones, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and accommodate female toe shape, a more narrow and reductive heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take pressure off the Achilles, a rounded instep that creates a snug fit through the middle to match the curvature of a woman's foot and supercritical foam and a PBEX plate in the midsole to keep our legs going when the going gets tough. Hedda's has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for your long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. I've been running in the Alma Tempos and they are a pleasure to train in. You can get your own pair of Hedda's at Hedda's.com and use the code FEISTY20, that's all caps, FEISTY20, for 20% off. Check it out today. We'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. Okay, Corinne, I, as I just told you before I hit record, I'm so internally grateful that you came back on our show. We talked before about when cancer enters the picture, but I get questions 
on the daily, pretty much at this point from women, you know, who have um, premature ovarian insufficiency, some as young as 36, you know, have reached out to me and they're in my group, uh, however, have had hysterectomies for other reasons, you know, all sorts of scenarios. And they all ask the same question is like, does the same menopausal advice apply to me? You know, what, what is the same, what is different? And I am not qualified to tell them this, you know, I mean, I, ha I have a certain amount of knowledge and I have certain, certainly a stable of experts that I can call on, but I wanted to do a show completely devoted to this. So thank you. Great. So happy to be back. You're doing super important work. And, you know, my mantra is when patients are educated and knowledgeable, they can get the care that they deserve. Because sometimes it's just about pushing your physician and asking the questions because like we were talking before, a lot of times in women's health, see, things seem very black and white, yes or no. But we know the devil's in the details and care should be individualized when we're talking about women's health in general, but especially about menopause. So, um, you know, doctors are super busy in their offices and they're pulled in lots of different directions. And I think when you're empowered and educated, you can go in and be like, hey, what's the right dose for someone my age or what are the risks or, you know, ask the harder questions. And if you don't get that, you know, if you don't get the response and the openness and the education that you think you should get, trust your gut and seek out more help. <laughs> Excellent advice out of the gate. So yeah. let's, let's start with the basics. How does surgical menopause different from natural menopause? Okay. So, you know, before the show, we talked about some of the things that we thought were important for women to understand if they're going through or dealing with some type of surgical or early menopause. So, you know, I thought it's really important to have some like ABC, some definitions of like menopause and surgery. So like, let's talk about like the basics. So natural menopause, all right. So it's the sensation of your periods, um, you know, for one year. So we talk about the final menstrual period. So that happens after one year of no, you know, menses. So the average age, natural menopause, age 52, if it happens before um, age 45, it's early. If it happens like, you know, after 54, 55, that's later. So that's natural menopause. And we're not going to focus on that today. Um, we're going to talk about, you know, the women who have that extra challenge of having it early. So, um, you know, when we talk about early menopause, we're talking about it, it could cause it could be caused from lots of you know reasons. Um, we could have surgical menopause. So surgical menopause, you know, can you know, and I think it's important. Women, you know, sometimes will come in and say, "Oh yeah, I'm I had a hysterectomy," but what they mean to say is that they had their ovaries removed. You know, these terms. You know, and so it's important for women to know the terminology here. So surgical menopause happens when we remove your ovaries surgically. You may, we may leave your uterus there, um, but taking out both ovaries is what puts you into surgical menopause. So kind of the official term um, that gets thrown out there is a BSO, a bilateral. So both sides, salpingo-oophorectomy. So taking the tubes and the ovaries. Um, sometimes it's done with taking out your uterus. Sometimes it's done, you know, just taking out the ovaries. And then it's important for women to understand there's different types of hysterectomies too. Um, hysterectomy is referring only to your uterus. So 
You can take out your entire uterus. You can take out your uterus above your cervix. So that's a supra cervical hysterectomy. So it preserves the cervix. And there are reasons why you might want to do that. So this is important for someone who is being counseled, say, that, you know, for whatever their health condition is that they should have their ovaries and uterus removed. It's really important for women to ask their surgeon, okay, you know, let's talk about the risks and benefits of that, but let's also talk about how you're going to do that and how that might affect my health. Um, when we talk about removing the uterus and leaving the cervix, if a woman doesn't have a history of obviously cervical cancer, but of, you know, abnormal pap smears or, you know, in recent years, and you know, there's a certain criteria, if you leave the cervix, it preserves the pelvic, some of the pelvic support to the vagina, and it may actually improve you know, kind of long-term pelvic health, like less incidents down the road of having, you know, prolapse and, you know, sexual problems and such um, bladder problems. So that's like a little important thing that no one really talks about when they, they, you know, counsel patients on surgical menopause. So that's just like a little side note there. Um, and I think that, um, so then, Surgical menopause is, you know, one cause of having, you know, menopause early. The other, you know, cause would be iatrogenic, meaning, you know, some type of, you know, toxicity that can, you know, damage your ovaries. So common reasons why you might have, you know, iatrogenic um, menopause would be like chemotherapy because, you know, there's a cytotoxic drug that's, you know, killing basically your follicles. Um also autoimmune diseases. That's a, um, a common, a more common correlation with what we call premature ovarian insufficiency, formerly called premature ovarian failure. We don't like to call it that anymore. It's a premature ovarian insufficiency, um, particularly hypothyroid, um, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis. Um, sometimes it happens, we don't know why. So we call that idiopathic. Um, and then rarely certain infections, HIV, mumps, you know, can cause it. Um, and along with chemotherapy, I should have mentioned also, you know, radiation therapy also to the pelvis, right? So, you know, there's an increasing number of women out there who have either surgical menopause or iatrogenic menopause because we've evolved and we've been able to successfully treat so many cancers and, and also identify women who are at risk for, you know, breast and ovarian cancer. So there's a whole generation coming of age now that have lost their ovaries and, or their ovarian function. Um, one in eight women will have their ovaries removed before the natural age of menopause. That's a lot of women. Yeah. And I'm sure a large percentage of those women are not getting the, um, the counseling before and after to really optimize their health, you know? So it, you know, it, it's a big pool of people. Um, so, you know, we can dive into all of the ways we, um, you know, deal with these women, which is pretty complex. Yeah. I have, I have one sort of defining question. Is there a difference my understanding, correct me if I'm incorrect on this, um, is that when you go into a surgical me menopause, a oophorectomy, if you have them removed, that sort of plummets you straight into menopause in a way that even menopause doesn't, right? Like, Absolutely. 
that's what one of the unique things about surgical menopause, um, even more so than iatrogenic, meaning from you know chemotherapy or radiation, which happens fast, but it doesn't happen immediate. Literally, when you wake up, you know, <laughs> in the recovery room after having your ovaries removed, you know, you've been just you're complete, you're basically been castrated, right? You're completely devoid of, you know, your estrogen, right? Um, and progesterone and some androgens, of course. Um, and, you know, it's known that your, you know, hot flashes, insomnia, mood changes, all can be kind of very severe and, and drastic overnight. Um, and so it's a unique challenge um, that these women face. And ideally, all women going through surgical menopause before they should really have a special counseling session where they're really explained, how are we going to deal with this and give them, you know, evidence-based, clear, up-to-date guidelines. And in far majority of cases, you know, if these women are having their ovaries removed before the age of natural menopause, um, and even at the age of natural menopause, but certainly before they really, you know, the gold standard really should be offering those women immediate hormone therapy. And we'll, we'll talk about, you know, how that therapy definitely differs to the therapy we would be, you know, offering a woman who was age 52, say, or older. So. And is, before we get to those therapies, is um, POI, the premature ovarian insufficiency, is that as abrupt? Generally speaking, not quite as abrupt. The, the most abrupt thing is obviously surgically. Yeah. And yeah. so it depends on the cause of premature ovarian insufficiency. You know, if it's a more of a chronic disease issue from a, you know, a autoimmune disease, um, you know, it might be, um, you know, spread out over, you know, a period of a few months or a year, you might have a young woman come into the office, say she's 36 years old and, her periods have gotten more irregular and she's having hot flashes and, you know, it's not quite as abrupt. Um, certainly if someone has very intense and very um, cytotoxic um, chemotherapy or radiation, it's going to be pretty abrupt as well, of course. Um, you know, but, and, and I think women with premature ovarian insufficiency can easily be misdiagnosed and kind of put off for a long time. And, you know, the younger you are when this premature ovarian insufficiency happens, the more, you know, risks build up when they're not offered appropriate diagnosis and treatment, because the longer they go with this insufficiency of estrogen, the more you know, bad effects of not having that estrogen builds up in their bodies from their heart, their bones, you know, their mind, you know. So it's and quality of life certainly. So, yeah, that makes that makes sense. And is yeah. there? It just occurred to me because I do hear from a lot of women who have their ovaries, as you had mentioned, but don't have their uterus. Um, mm -hmm. Is menopause present differently for them? It, it can absolutely. And this is something that I think is rarely discussed. It's super important for women to realize this. If you have a simple hysterectomy for a benign reason, you know, fibroids or heavy bleeding or whatever, um, but you leave your ovaries intact, the, you know, you studies have shown that you'll, it's about four year earlier that you could four years earlier that you may go through 
menopause. So instead of the, you know, average age of 52, you're going to, you know, could be as early as, you know, your early forties or, you know, even earlier. So, and that's, they don't know exactly why, but probably the, um, the ovaries get their supply um, from, you know, multiple blood vessels. And so when you cut, um, you know, the support structures instead of some of the blood flow um, of the uterus, obviously to remove it, you may compromise some of the blood flow to the ovary. And that may contribute, you know, to the ovary, you know, kind of like failing a little sooner than, you know, what would naturally be. So I think, you know, women should be aware when they have a hysterectomy that, you know, you might have a little bit earlier menopause, which is important because maybe they can, you know, speak up a little sooner, you know, and get the care they need. And they also may, you know, want to, all women should, but focus on all the lifestyle things that they can do to really um, kind of prepare for the fact that they may have, you know, earlier menopause. So yeah, that's important. And uh, I think that, you know, what I mentioned before about women who have intact ovaries, but they have their uterus taken out is to, you know, discuss, you know, the different forms of how that uterus is taken out and, you know, how that might affect their pelvic health as well. So, right. Right. And I don't hear people talking about this as much as I did when I was growing up, when I was growing up, I would hear women refer to getting their tubes tied. Um, is that still a thing? And does that impact menopause differently? So yeah, getting your tube tied is still a thing. So, you know, um, it's, you know, a, a, a appropriate option for birth control for some women. Um, we've evolved now and, you know, certainly you can do a, a simple procedure tying the tubes for contraception. But, you know, when we're going in to take out somebody's uterus, do a hysterectomy for say a benign reason, um, we often now will take the entire, you know, fallopian tube because it might lower the um, ovarian cancer risk. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I said this opposite. If you're going in to just take out the ovaries and you're leaving the uterus, say, we also, you know, consider taking out the entire fallopian tube because that may um, add to a decreased risk of ovarian cancer. Um, so, you know, that's important where in the past, you know, they may have just taken out the ovaries and left the fallopian tubes. And, you know, studies found that those women still, you know, many years down the road, you know, had a small risk of ovarian cancer or something that we call primary peritoneal cancer. And that's because there may be some associations with the cells on the fallopian tubes and the cells on the ovaries in, you know, causing or initiating ovarian cancer. What would they do with the tubes if they weren't attached to the ovaries anymore? That was just like a very curious, like, do they just flop around in there? <laughs> do they? No, your tubes are attached to your uterus. They're not attached to your ovaries. Oh, look, look I'm showing my anatomical ignorance. I'm looking yeah, so like, okay. if, you if your body, if a woman's body is her uterus, put your arms out at the sides right. and your little fingers, okay? So your arms are your fallopian tubes. Right. I thought they were, they're not attached. No, and your fingers are the fimbria, okay, which are basically little tentacles, okay, and those little tentacles wrap themselves around your pretty little ovaries, mm -hmm. okay, so when the egg comes down your arm, your tube, your fallopian tube, those little fingers, the fimbria, you know, kind of help kind of guide and like push, oh. <laughs> you know, <push laughs> she's like firm. waving her hands, I thought that they yeah. had a grasp on them. Yeah. <laughs> 
It's beautiful. They push the sperm right near the follicle. And so that egg that was released in the sperm can unite. And most of the time, the fertilization will happen somewhere, you know, in the fallopian tube, and then it will travel down and then, you know, hopefully implant into the uterus if, you know, pregnancy is going to be successful. So yeah, so your tubes are not attached to your, your ovaries. So, you know, it's really more modern thinking that if a woman comes in, say for, you know, a BSO to have both of her ovaries removed because say she is a BRCA one or two carrier, right? Or she's a strong family history of, um, you know, uh, ovarian or breast cancer. Uh, they'll remove the ovaries, but they'll also take the tubes right out up until where they attach into the uterus. Gotcha. Yep. Excellent. All right. We've had our anatomy <laughs> lesson. We have a reproductive lesson. Um, let's talk strategies for these women. Um, you know, starting, you have mentioned several times that really women who are in any of these situations where we're talking early menopause should have a conversation about hormone therapy. Absolutely. You know, I think it's substandard care and really a dereliction of duty, in my opinion, for any woman going through surgical menopause or any other, you know, iatrogenic cause of menopause to at an early age to not be offered options and really explain the benefits of why hormone replacement is really important. And, you know, we were talking about this before we started the show of this idea of, you know, there's hormone therapy for menopause, right. Mm -hmm. And that therapy to kind of help women with their symptom symptoms of menopause, but we don't want to pathologize menopause and say that it must be replaced. And if you don't replace it, it's bad. And menopause is a disease. So, and I, I believe that, but I also believe on the other side is that when you're talking about someone going through menopause prematurely and losing their estrogen, it, tr you really need to think about it as replacing what is lost because they've lost something. Okay. If I took your thyroid out, I wouldn't say, just see how you feel. Okay. Let's see what happens. Okay. I give you thyroid hormone. Okay. If you think that if a man, because they had cancer or some disease, or for some reason they needed to have their testicles removed at 35 or 40, do you think anybody, anybody, any doctor, any human being out there would think it was acceptable to not talk to that man about replacing his testosterone? It would be like, you know, it would be a travesty, but for, you know, for decades or generations for since, you know, since beyond time, women have just been expected, even if it's early to just deal with it. And it's because of this black and white idea of hormone replacement therapy is dangerous, wrong hormone replacement therapy is bad and risky. And you should, you know, why would you put yourself up to that risk? This very outdated, non-evidence supported, you know, thought process, which comes from lots of other reasons, which, you know, we can talk about another time has really, I think, um, affects women with early premature or surgical menopause. And they feel nervous. They feel guilty if they, you know, ask about hormones or, you know, sometimes they're pushed back by doctors who are, you know, sometimes either misinformed or very or an older physician who is practicing 
the way they practice for decades and they haven't kind of changed their tune. Um, but it's, you know, and it, it's really, it makes me angry. Obviously I'm very passionate about it, but because I would see women in my practice who, who were survivors of, you know, various things, um, you know, various reasons they would come to me for, you know, this early menopause and they'd be like 40 years old and menopausal for like 10 years and crying because they have like, you know, they can't have sex. Their vagina is dry. They can't sleep all this stuff. I was like, how come, and I'm not talking about breast cancer survivors, which is, you know, another, you know, it's like a special pool of patients because of estrogen, you know, dependent breast cancer, you know, tumors and such. That's like a, another discussion. And, and those women can be offered types of hormone replacement therapy in certain situations, but I'm talking about, you know, women with benign disease or non-estrogen related cancers being denied hormone care, hormone therapy care. And it's really heartbreaking because these women many times have suffered for many years, you know, and for no reason at all. Wow. That I can't even wrap my head around that. Like I can't. But it happens all the time. It happens all the time, you know? As a lifelong runner and cyclist, I am stoked to announce that Tifosi Optics has come on as a podcast sponsor. The beauty of Tifosi sports glasses is that they hit all the marks. They are shatterproof polycarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance and complete eye protection. They stay put. They have little hydrophilic rubber nose pads that actually get more grippy the more you sweat, so they stay secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in sauna-like conditions. No matter what sport you do, they have a shade for your activity, including tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, and just hanging out at the beach. And they are super reasonably well-priced, which is very hard to find in a sea of overpriced eyewear. And they just look freaking rad. So head on over to tifosioptics.com and use the code FM, capital F, and capital M, like feisty menopause, number 20, FM20, to get 20% off your order today. I'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. Good sleep. The one thing that sets you up for a great workout and a good day is quality sleep. We talk about it all the time here on the show, which is why I'm stoked to have Lagoon Sleep as a new sponsor. Because one of the most overlooked tools in a great sleep toolbox is the thing you literally rest your head on eight hours a night, your pillow. A quality pillow is everything. Otherwise, you end up tossing, turning, punching, and folding your pillow, waking up with neck pain, and all the stuff that happens when your pillow doesn't meet your personal comfort needs. Say hello to the most comfortable sleep you've ever had with Lagoon. They start you out with a two-minute personalized pillow quiz and then pair you with your perfect pillow. I got the Otter, a cooling adjustable pillow that is perfect for side sleepers who run warm at night like I do. It is a dream. It's fully adjustable, so I was able to get the perfect loft and support, and the cooling feature is everything. As someone who turned into a furnace every evening before menopause, I appreciate that the Otter is stuffed, with shredded gel-infused memory foam, which instead of trapping heat from my neck and head, draws it away and dissipates it. It's truly delightful. I'm a good sleeper, and Otter's taken it to the next level with both support and cooling. Put my head down, good night, Irene. My aura ring confirms what little tossing and turning I was doing is gone. 
The beauty of the pillow quiz is you can get the perfect pillow that you need to and make your sleep the best sleep you can have. Go to lagoonsleep.com slash hit play and take the two minute quiz to find your perfect match and then use the code hit play all caps one word for 15% off your first purchase. Sweet dreams. Let's let's talk about what that looks like, because what I'm hearing, do these women um, who are having, you know, whether it is surgical or POI, are they getting higher dosages? I mean, is it a different dose? It is. Yeah, you're not. It is. And well, it should be. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah, it should be. So the, the recommendations are that, you know, when women have premature menopause from surgery or another reason that you should try to mirror what they would physiologically be producing. Okay. So let's use one mill. So, you know, one milligram of a, um, you know, oral estrogen for someone in postmenopausal. Okay. We should probably be doubling that for a woman who is premature menopausal, right? So definitely higher doses. And also, um, we should really think about, um, you know, their contraceptive needs, even though people think, okay, premature ovarian insufficiency. So their ovaries aren't working. You know, why should we worry about contraception? So obviously if someone has their ovaries removed, so surgical menopause, we don't have to worry about contraception in their case. Those women should be offered higher dose hormone replacement with estrogen. We'll talk about the progesterone in a minute. For women who have premature ovarian insufficiency and still have intact ovaries, in some cases, those women may have spontaneous ovulation or some, you know, a little bit, you know, function left in their ovaries. So, you know, if you give those women hormone, or I'm sorry, if you go give those women standard menopause hormone replacement therapy, those doses are too low, one, to ever prevent pregnancy if they had spontaneous, you know, ovulation. Um, and they're also too low to give them the health benefits that these women need, you know, to protect heart, their brain, their bones. Right. Um, it was, you know, kind of standard practice for years to just throw these women on a birth control pill. Right. Uh, which is fine. And it's, and it's an okay, it's an okay option. Uh, I think newer um, thinking is that these women should really be on the physiologic um, doses of estrogen and progesterone. And ideally, if you've got a woman with um, early menopause from premature ovarian insufficiency, obviously with their ovaries still present, um, say they're 36, um, you should probably be giving them a higher dose of estrogen. And then about two weeks a month, you can cycle them with progesterone or a progestin. And the reason why you might want to cycle them is if they were sexually active and they had spontaneous ovulation, if you're cycling them with a a menstrual bleed, you know, um, you know, once a month and they happen to get pregnant, you would know because they wouldn't bleed. Okay. If you gave them estrogen and progesterone every single day, so continuous hormone therapy, you wouldn't necessarily know if they ovulated and gotten pregnant because they wouldn't get their period. So I'd say because of that, I think a lot of 
a lot of women will just be put on a combined, you know, oral contraceptive pill or, you know, um, some other contraception, um, which is fine. But, you know, newer, newer thinking shows that perhaps, um, you know, bioidentical FDA approved, you know, from your regular pharmacy, I'm not talking about compounded real estrogen, whether it's in a pill form or in a patch form is probably ideal. And, um, I, my preference is for real progesterone. So, you know, micronized progesterone, which is quote unquote bioidentical. So it's the same hormone that your body's missing is probably, you know, preferred for most women of any age with menopause, because it's, uh, you know, probably has a better safety and kind of risk benefit profile than the synthetic progestins. Um, not to say that the synthetic progestins aren't a good option for many women, but yeah. So I think that's one thing. If women are offered the hormone replacement therapy, I've seen a lot of cases where they're given the wrong dosage or the, or the not ideal type, you know, um, or just thrown on the birth control pill, which can be fine for some women, but you know, you have to look at it from each woman's perspective because some women may, you know, benefit from different versions. So it's a little complex. And so the average, you know, say, primary care doctor, or even the, you know, average OBGYN, you know, the bulk of many of their practices are delivering babies and, you know, doing surgeries for benign conditions. And they're super busy. The demands of insurance and these, you know, health, large healthcare groups that have formed now, you know, they have to see a ton of patients. <laughs> they don't have time to go through these nuances, you know? So that's why I don't think women, you know, fall through the cracks of their doctors because of ill intent on physicians part. It's maybe it's because of lack of time to really spend with their patients and, and often a lack of training, you know, our training as OBGYNs doesn't really prepare us quite well for menopause <laughs> and dealing with these types of things, unless physicians and other healthcare providers seek out that education, you know, and that's where being informed as a consumer of healthcare and as a patient is so important because sometimes you need to bring it to your physician's attention. Right. You I was know? just going to say like, what is the best way to ensure that you are getting that care? Is it, is it seeking out a doctor who has like North American menopause society certificate, you know, like in their provider list. I mean, yeah, I, mean make... I think, yes, listen, there's, yes. NAMS is North American menopause certified provider is, is great. There's tons of amazing, you know, women healthcare providers who maybe don't, didn't take the test, have that certification. So I think, and, you know, and the thing is a lot of women who are getting um, their ovaries removed or having a hysterectomy and we're going through any of these, you know, medical problems, you know, maybe just seeing their, general OBGYN who delivered their kids. It's the doctor in their community. They have a long-term relationship with them. That's the person who's doing their surgery. They're not necessarily going to have their ovaries taken out by some, you know, menopause specialist, you know? So in those cases, it's women, you know, either don't want to leave their doctor or, and find someone else, or they literally from a geographic sense, they, they can't. I mean, you know, um, that's a large swaths of these, this country don't, don't have access to specialty care. Like, you know, we might have where I live here, you know, in the New York city suburbs. So I think in that situation, this is where like patient education, things like what you do with, you know, um, your, um, your, your podcast and, you know, you know, we were talking about this earlier, you know, leveraging up technology for patient education so that it doesn't matter where you live in the country world, you can get the, 
you know, the answers. And so I do think it behooves patients, no matter what you're going through, when you show up for your doctor's appointment or for your, you know, you know, pre-op surgical counseling or your post-op visit, you should come with a pad and paper. You should come with a list of questions and, you know, we'll put it at the end of this, um, you know, you'll, you'll put a link, you know, for the podcast, I'll, I'll give some, some, some great, um, you know, uh, very um, high quality um, sources where patients can get some great information. You know, you and I both know North American Medical Society is a great, you know, place. I've got some other um, options up to date is, you know, a great medical database that all, <laughs> all, all healthcare providers use, but they have excellent, um, you know, patient education um, guidelines that are free for the general public. So that's like, you know, that's one of my, that and NAMS or my, my two favorite sources for patients, but I feel like it, there's a, there's a partnership and you need to come to your doctor and, and bring your questions. And, you know, a good doctor will admit if they don't know all the answers and they'll either get themselves informed or they'll help you get the answer. Yeah. And, you know, we also talked a bit before we started recording that if you are, and there are many women who are geographically challenged with this, right. I mean that many, many, um, there are so many online services now that if you feel like you have a doctor who's like not hearing you, not listening, maybe not as informed as you want them to be, you bring these questions and they're like, ah, um, you know, Genev, Electra, you had mentioned another one, perhaps. Yeah, Alloy. Alloy. Alloy Women's Health is another one um, that um, I've been consulting with recently. Um, there's a real boom in we talked about this femtech and particularly finally with the menopause lens, I think, you know, telehealth, uh, silver lining of the pandemic is that consumers of healthcare as well as physicians and other healthcare providers saw that, yeah, telehealth can work. It has its limitations. Listen, it's, it doesn't answer everything, but it can, it can, um, help people who are geographically challenged or, or even not geographically challenged, even in, you know, areas like New York City suburbs, there's plenty of women in this area who still are not getting, I can't tell you how many times I've got a patient who comes from one of the major cancer centers in New York City that is world famous and no one talked to them about surgical menopause or that they're suffering or that their vagina is super dry and they're crying after sex or you know, they can't go to work because they like can't sleep in it. So, you know, even in the, the most supposedly well-resourced places, there's a real role for this, um, you know, kind of this online patient education piece. For sure. So, so we've talked a bit about like what the, you know, the formulations and the dosages might be different. There's also this language around how long you should stay on it. You know, I mean, should these women, are they on it the rest of their lives? Do those doses change as they quote unquote, get to what would normally be a menopausal age? What if somebody never started it and now they're outside of the magic window? You know, like wh what does all that look like? Yeah. Timing is super important. So, so let's start with the kind of the beginning is women who are having surgical menopause, really, they should really wake up with that estrogen patch on them in the recovery room. Okay. There are, you know, sometimes surgeons will prefer to start it, you know, at their post-op visit a week out or something, but, but basically they should be, they should ideally, you know, if there's no contraindications and, you know, no other reasons why they couldn't be on hormone therapy, they should really start it immediately at physiologic doses, little higher doses, as we spoke about. And 
no matter what age it is, so they could be 28, they could be 21, they could be 34, they could be 42, whatever. They should stay on that dosing up to about the age of natural menopause. So let's just say about 52, right? Then around that time, can transition those patients to um, kind of more traditional hormone replacement therapy products, you know? And uh, you can, uh, you know, or, you know, if they're on a birth control pill, because many of these women will be just, they'll use, you know, a continuous birth control pill, you know, same thing. They can switch to from contraceptive pill to, you know, hormone replacement therapy, you know, at lower doses. And then the clock, supposedly, you could kind of restart the clock in terms of duration. So, you know, if you've been on, you know, hormone therapy for 14 years because of surgical menopause, and now you're 52, 53, say, you don't have to be worried. The, the idea of like, oh, only use hormone replacement therapy for like four or five years, you know, that doesn't apply to you. That is not, that has nothing to do with you. Okay. We, you know, we're going to restart that kind of timeline, you know, when you get to that natural age of menopause. Okay. So, so now you're around like say 52. All right. Now the decision on how long you're going to continue, or you're going to, you know, be on now hormone, you know, therapy for menopause, um, you know, it's going to be individualized because the reality is once your ovaries are gone and there is no easy answer to this, how long you should be on it. Once your ovaries are gone, you're not the same after age 52 as someone who's going through natural menopause at 52. And that's because, and this is a, a, an important concept, a post, a, a woman who goes through natural menopause and has intact ovaries. Okay. You know, most women, will have the worst symptoms with natural menopause in, you know, the first bunch of years going through menopause and certainly in that perimenopausal time, which can be as long as eight years or more before that last menstrual period. But basically during the transition time is when they're most symptomatic, right? And so this is where this kind of general idea of low dose for a shorter period of time, you know, less than say four or five years. Okay. And a lot of women will do fine with that approach, you know, in natural menopause. And, you know, maybe at year five or year six, you know, they may decide to slowly kind of wean off the hormones, or let's take the instance of a woman who chose never to do hormone replacement therapy at natural menopause. She may have some bad hot flashes for, you know, a year or two, maybe lifestyle modifications or non-hormonal options were enough to help her. And then things kind of settle and we don't know exactly why, but we think that there's probably, you know, things that are still being secreted, right. From your postmenopausal ovaries that kind of are enough to make you feel, you know, for your quality of life to be good and for you not to have continued horrible hot flashes, you know, a postmenopausal ovary still produces testosterone at pretty much similar levels, roughly um, to premenopausal, um, that testosterone and other androgens that the um, secretes will get converted to a weak form of estrogen from by your fat cells and other cells. So a woman who has intact ovaries is going to have some hormones that are in menopause, right? That a woman who surgically had their, their ovaries removed 
Do not. So if you stop hormone replacement therapy, say at age 61 in someone who doesn't have ovaries, that transition is likely going to be harder than the woman who went through natural menopause, maybe took hormone therapy, maybe didn't. They're going to have a different time because they still have intact ovaries. And I think it's a concept that women don't always understand, you know? Yeah. I, that was really that. I really appreciate that. <laughs> but so then so that gets back to the duration then. So it's like, you know, we are going to take the advice that we give to women who go through natural menopause on duration of therapy, right? So the kind of the mantra and, you know, the North American Menopause Society just released their 2022, you know, position statement on, on hormone replacement therapy. And it's, you know, we'll put a link to that. There's mm-hmm. excellent you know, um, explanation about that, but basically we should initiate hormone replacement therapy around the natural time of menopause. And, you know, anytime before, you know, age 60 is ideal. Um, you know, do we initiate it or continue it after age 60? There used to be this idea of like, no. And what NAMS and, you know, the, you know, all the available evidence tells us now is that women who, you know, assess their, their risks and their health kind of basically on a yearly basis after age 60, can you continue on if it, you know, the risks and benefits and shared decision-making with their doctor and them say, yeah, this is an appropriate thing for them to do because they feel like their quality of life has improved, or they may have risk factors that they want to, you know, um, modify like bone loss, for instance, or, Mm. you know, such. So we're going to take that kind of data and those recommendations, and we're going to extrapolate it for women who had gone through surgical menopause, you know? So the same thing would, I would offer those women, you know, continued therapy if they so desire based on, you know, sitting down and looking at, you know, their risks and benefits. The tricky question comes is what you said is, all right, so they were on hormones, Mm-hmm. They stopped mm-hmm. it for whatever reason, you know, um, and it could be they just ran out or they changed their mind or a doctor refused to give it to them because, oh, you've been on it long enough, whatever. There's all kinds of reasons. Right. And now they're like, huh, maybe I should go back on it. So that is really needs to be individualized. You know, I think the most important thing is ask the person why do they want to go back on it? So if they want to go back on it because they're symptomatic, they're having quality of life issues with hot flashes, insomnia, um, sexual dysfunction, vaginal dryness, then those women should really, um, they deserve to, you know, be informed of risks and benefits, and they should probably be offered hormone replacement therapy, you know, if deemed appropriate for them. I think it's a little trickier when you've got a woman asking, okay, I was on hormone replacement therapy for, you know, a period of time. I stopped it. And now I want to go back on it because I hear that there's a lot of, you know, health benefits, right? And so that's a little trickier because really right now we try to treat patients for, you know, you know, if they're symptomatic, right? Um, And we're counseled as providers not to give hormone replacement therapy for perceived risk reductions of coronary artery disease or perceived, you you know, risk reductions for other health things. We just don't have enough data on that yet. I do think that, and I think women will find, you know, whether they have access to hormone replacement therapy in that situation. So starting it for the first time after age 60 or starting it 
after many years of not being on it and starting it because they're, but not because they're symptomatic, I think it will be harder for them to find providers who are comfortable prescribing that to them. That doesn't mean that it's a wrong option. And I think for some women, it's a viable option because women are capable of making their own decisions. And I think if they're well-informed of risks, then, you know, they can make that decision. The biggest risk really being is a higher risk of um, venous thromboembolus and stroke. Okay. That's blood clots. Blood clots. But I think that, again, that's where things have to be individualized. So would I want to initiate it on someone who is obese, sedentary lifestyle, who, you know, has other risk factors for coronary artery disease, high cholesterol or a family history? No. But if I had a woman who's doing all the right things lifestyle wise and, you know, is concerned about kind of, you know, losing out on some of the benefits of hormone replacement therapy in terms of bone protection or, you know, other things, I'd be willing to have that conversation with that woman, you know? Um, And I think, you know, that's a very different patient. So it's individualized. And this is what makes it harder for doctors because it has to be so individualized when there's not a neat guideline that they can be like, okay, I feel safe doing this and no one's going to sue me. (laughs) Then they, they don't feel comfortable prescribing it when it gets a little into, you know, you know, it gets a little bit more complicated. I think the average women's healthcare provider gets a little nervous, you know, and I understand why. Oh, totally. Totally. Um, in all of that, what I, what I still am a little unclear of is, is there, cause I hear this question an awful lot too, and, and not, and now I'm not talking about women who have had surgical menopause or who have had premature, but I'm talking about the woman who started using uh, any kind of menopausal hormone therapy for her symptoms in that window. And she's like, do I need to go off of this? And why, you know, like that's, I feel like that's still kind of unclear. I mean, does she like, can I take it till I'm 90 or do I need to? And I, I haven't seen a definitive answer on that. Yeah. You know, I, there's not a, a super definitive answer. Although I do think uh, I was very happy. The, the NAMS position statement really addresses this very specifically. So we'll definitely include that as a link, but you know, I think now, it, again, it's back to this concept of shared decision-making. So does this woman need to stay on it? Well, let's see. First of all, if they're feeling great and they're doing, you know, they feel like, you know, they're, they're, they're symptom-free from menopausal symptoms, they're leading a health, healthy lifestyle, they can decide. Some women I've you know said to me, I love this. I feel great. I don't ever want to go back to like any hot flashes or any of that. I want to stay on it. Can I stay on it, doctor? I say, yes. I said, if you understand that over the age of 60, right, you know, and then certainly over the age of 70 and certainly over the age of 80. So the older you get, the higher that, you know, that risk for a blood clot or a stroke gets. Overall, it's still, you know, quite rare in an otherwise healthy person. Um, So, you know, we talk about those risks. Some women, you know, who've been on hormone replacement therapy for a long time might want to have a little trial of going off it and kind of just seeing how they feel. Some women might want to decrease their dose. We've got lots of great like estradiol patch options. I love Vivel Dot in particular because you've got a very, very low dosage. You've got a lot of flexibility. So you can kind of slowly cut a woman back on the amount of estrogen, see how they do understand that it's an, it's a transition period. And, you know, um, if they are, you know, want to get off it 
and they are concerned or they have hot flashes at the very beginning, you can always overlap um, the decreasing of the, you know, or weaning off of the, the hormone replacement therapy with like, say, a low dose of an SSRI, you know, a paroxetine or Effexor, the generic form is venlafaxine. That's another option, although I think that's a little harder to come off of once you start. So that's just a little caveat with Effexor, which can be great for hot flashes, but can be a little harder to come off of. You've got to come off of it in a proper way. So if a woman is coming off their hormone replacement therapy, I think that they should be offered like, hey, you're probably going to get these hot flashes back. And if you do, don't panic. If you really want to come off the hormone replacement therapy, we can do a non-hormonal treatment to kind of help you with the transition. And then just like a natural menopause, it may just be a transition. And you might kind of be able to settle into a place where you're not really having a lot of hot flashes. You're doing great lifestyle things and you're fine, right? Um, so I think that's appropriate. And guess what? If you come off the hormone replacement therapy and after a couple of months, you're like, you know what? This really stinks. I felt much better on it. Then yeah, you know, we can go back and you understand that you might have a slightly higher risk of stroke or blood clot, but you're going to do things with your lifestyle to mitigate that hopefully. So that's kind of how I would, you know, counsel patients on that. Um, but, you know, and I want to just add if women come or off systemic hormone replacement therapy, patch or a pill for whatever reason, they should always be, you know, um, informed about how safe and effective vaginal only treatment is. Okay. Because, you know, if women would just be counseled on that when they either stop hormone replacement therapy or decline hormone replacement therapy for whatever reason, vaginal estrogen in low doses, there is a vaginal ring that is systemic dose called femring, but um, a um, low dose vaginal estrogen is extremely sleep, is not associated with the clotting stroke and such. Um, and it can really preserve vaginal health and sexual function. And I've seen countless, countless patients who have been told, no, no estrogen at all for you. And it's like a black and white thing. And they come and they're like, have been suffering with their sexual health and relationships for far too many years. So, and in fact, what I see is, you know, because the, you know, postmenopausal vaginal atrophy and changes, they're often a more later finding. So it may not happen immediately. It may happen at five years or six years or even later after going through menopause. And at that time, the woman doesn't even think that, you know, it's an option for her anymore because she's so many years out. Um, it's not even a discussion at her doctor's office any visit anymore. So I think there's a lot of women who fall through the cracks there. So that's like something really important to me. And I think that really anybody, if they're not taking hormone replacement therapy and menopause, they should always every year be, you know, questioned on, you know, sexual health and vaginal health. And if, you know, if they need that, because it's a, it's a big missing piece for a lot of women. Oh, I, I, I can't agree more <laughs> only because I am not on any systemic, you know, cause I, I feel great. I, you know, I'm doing well. Yeah. Um, but out of nowhere, I was like, what is happening? I mean, everything got painful and it's just like, uh, you know, I, I didn't realize there could be such sort of, like you said, such a delayed kind of symptom. And, uh, you know, the, the ring, the, not the systemic ring, but the other ring has been amazing. You know, it's just. Great. 
yeah. it's convenient. It's easy there, you know, and there's so many different preparations. So there's something for everyone. There's a ring, there's creams, there's, you know, um, I love Invexi. It's a little, a small little capsule, love, love Invexi. And Invexi has two doses. So it's got a four microgram and a 10 microgram. So you can do super low dose or like the more standard dose. Um, you know, there's tons of formulations out there. So I think that's really, really important. Um, and I know we're not specifically talking about cancer, but I think that with breast cancer survivors, um, you know, vaginal estrogen alone, not systemic estrogen, that's like a, a different ball of wax, which again, not black and white, but a different ball of wax. Um, those women really should be offered vaginal estrogen in very, there's very few times where an oncologist of a breast cancer patient would, would be uncomfortable with it. You know, there's lots, lots of data, you know, supporting it. And, um, you know, and even, even young breast cancer survivors, you know, in certain cases, thinking is continuing to evolve. You know, if you have tried every other thing and your quality of life is just atrocious because you're in menopause and you're a breast cancer survivor, it's okay to have that discussion with your doctor about some form of hormone therapy. It, you know, in some cases it may be acceptable. And I think our understanding of estrogen and cancer is evolving really rapidly. So what was once considered taboo is not no longer. Um, and then one category of patients I want to bring up because I think that a lot of, we mentioned it before, there's a lot of um, women having their ovaries removed. Um, they carry a BRCA1 or 2 gene or another gene. And with increasing testing, I mean, hopefully one day we might get to universal testing um, where we, we can really identify all those carriers out there. There's a lot of women out there who, you know, don't have cancer. They know they carry the gene and they've been afraid to take hormones, you know, um, and it's, it's a real problem. And it's actually a reason why a lot of women who are genetic mutation carrier put off having this very, could be life-saving surgery of having your ovaries removed. They put it off you know, until like, oh, maybe I'll do it when I'm 50, you know, or, you know, where the guidelines are really that you do it before age 40. Right. Um, but women are afraid because like, I don't want to go through menopause and I'm afraid of hormone replacement therapy, but actually NAMS and other organizations have put out very strong statements that, you know, BR1, BRC, BRCA, what in two carriers um, who, you know, are, we, we call them pre-vivors, meaning they're not survived. They haven't had cancer yet. Those women really, the, the preponderance of evidence shows that those women taking hormone replacement therapy are not at an increased risk of breast cancer if they have intact breasts. Okay. Because some of these women will just remove their ovaries for ovarian cancer prevention. They may not remove to bilateral mastectomy when it's a, it's really a bigger surgery. And the difference between breast and ovarian cancer is with breast cancer, we have screening. We can, there's things we can do for early detection. We don't have those tests for ovarian cancer. So if you're a mutation carrier, removing those ovaries and going through surgical menopause is really more important in some regards than surgically removing your breast because we've got options to watch you, right? So those are, there's a lot of these women out there who have no ovaries, they still have their breasts and they're suffering, but they shouldn't. They can safely take hormone replacement therapy. Um, cause these women are getting these surgeries at an early age, you know, and there's going to be more and more and more of them in the coming years and decades, as we discover more, you know, genetic mutations that are, you know, causing, you know, breast cancer. 
Right. Yeah, of course. Well, this has been extraordinarily informative. Is there anything that you thought that we should cover on this topic for this audience that we have not addressed? I think we did a great job, actually. I'm like just looking at my notes of what I wanted to make sure I accomplished today. But I think we hit a lot of the topics and, you know, we'll include information on where patients can get, you know, um, more information if they, they have more questions. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time again. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. You too, Celine. Thank you. Have a great day. Well, that's our show. Come on back next week when I sit down with Dr. Alyssa Dweck, who is a practicing gynecologist in New York, the author of The Complete A to Z for Your V, and who has a special interest and expertise in female sexual health and medical sex therapy. We talk about the state of menopause care and femtech, which is all that stuff that is in the works to make menopause better. So come on back for that one. And until then, as always, stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause, and please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends, and please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay feisty.